Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Deblaina Chakraborty. And we have another very special October Halloween spooky episode for you today. This time it is an interview, in fact. Yes, we did something really cool recently. Last month, we went to the Decatur Book Festival right here in Georgia, and we got the chance to see Holly Tucker, who is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University, talk about her new book, which is called Blood Work, A Tale of Medicine and Murder in the Scientific Revolution. So we went into it excited about it, but thinking, okay, this is going to be a book all about the history of blood and blood circulation and blood transfusions. But what we found was so, so much more. Well, yeah, and because Holly's interview was part of the Atlanta Science Tavern's first science track at the Decatur Book Festival, I had a suspicion that there would be more than uh, just, just sort of a straight medical story. True. And, I mean, it, it, there is a lot more. There are monsters. There's murder, obviously, in the title. And um, it, the thing that surprised me most about the book and about Holly's lecture, though, is that the history of blood transfusion starts so much earlier than you would expect. I guess that's the first, uh, maybe a little disturbing fact about the book. I mean, it starts off in the 1600s. Yeah, just to give you a brief rundown, it's about the very first blood, human blood transfusion, which took place in the 1600s, and the man who performed them and how his experiments were kind of shut down 
and the mystery, the murder mystery surrounding them. Well, and this rivalry, too. There are a lot of rivalries at play between France, where the first transfusion took place, and England, where the earlier experiments in blood transfusions with animals took place. And uh, just rivalry among the doctors in France, too. So there's a lot going on, and then there are some really pretty horrific experiments. So I think you guys are going to like this, and like hearing about sort of a Dr. Frankenstein sort of sort of medical history. Yeah, it's definitely a monster story. And Holly Tucker took us through this for about 45 minutes and we were riveted in our chairs and not just by the story, but by her, too. She's such a cool person with a enviable career that we will discuss more later. But first, we want to start with the story. Yeah. And the first question we wanted to ask her was how did she find something like this? Because as we just mentioned, we were surprised that the history of blood transfusion started in the 17th century. How did Holly stumble upon this? Here's what she had to say. Well, the best thing about being a university professor is that you teach. And when it works really well, um, and especially at a place like Vanderbilt it often does, is that what you do in the classroom informs your research and your research informs your teaching. Um, so I was planning a course in my history of medicine class, I'm sorry, a segment in my history of medicine class on William Harvey's discovery of blood circulation. And I, it's a lecture I'd been giving many, many times before, and I was getting a little bit bored of it. So I decided as I was planning my class, I would do a little bit more reading around blood. And um, it, it, at that time, the philosophical transactions, which are the main um which were the main publications for the Royal Society at this time. So in the um, 17th century, they were talking a lot about blood and blood transfusion in the years following Harvey. And I thought, blood transfusion? I had that same response that you did, is what in the world? This is the 17th century. So as I was looking at this discovery of blood circulation, it led me to uh, expand out and just stumble, quite literally st- stumble on blood transfusion. So it made for a really fun lecture because I was also a student. I really was still trying to find my way through the topic. And what's almost as surprising as the fact that people were doing blood transfusions this long ago is just learning what their previous ideas about blood were. English physician William Harvey didn't discover blood circulation and describe the circulatory system until the 1600s, and his ideas were considered pretty radical at the time. In her book, Tucker includes a good bit about the historical notions about blood, which explains, among other things, why bloodletting was such a popular treatment for all sorts of illnesses at the time, and she tells us a little bit more about all of that here. What's really interesting about the history of blood transfusion is just how unlikely it would have been for people to imagine putting blood in, because they had spent so long imagining all the the myriad ways to take blood out. And that was based on longstanding notions of the body as this balance of fluids and what they called was they called them humors and these were notions the humoral way of understanding the body is something that began in antiquity with galen hippocrates those are names that many people recognize galen and hippocrates understood the body to be this production of fluids and when you were healthy your humors bile blood black bile and um phlegm were all in balance and when you were sick it was out of balance And one way that you could adjust the humors was through nutrition. 
So if you had an, if your body was overly cold, you would eat more warm, humorally warm food. Um, or what you could do is to sort of jump set, start that balance would be to do bloodletting, either through lancets or leeches, all the, all the things that we typically associate with, with early medicine. And that model had a specific, um, influence on how blood was understood. First, blood didn't circulate. They didn't know that blood circulated. Instead, blood was produced in the digestive system. So what you ate food, it was concocted was the word they used, concocted in the stomach, moved to the liver where it was distilled into the life force of blood. Then it, the, the fluid blood would move up to the heart and the heart was seen something as a, a furnace. So to provide heat and energy to the body, the blood would be burned off. So it made this one way trip to the heart essentially. And so they didn't know yet about the relationship between the uh, pulmonary system and the cardiovascular system. So breathing was simply a way to stoke the fires of the heart. And then, um, when you breathe out, of course, it was to get rid of some of the, some of the smoke. And I'm using quote fingers here, some of the smoke produced by, by the heart's fires. So hearing all about the humors and the coldness and warmness of the body and keeping all of that in balance made us wonder if that was the root of the old saying that you feed a cold and starve a fever. Here's what Hallie had to say. I think so. In fact, um, feeding a cold, starving a fever, because what you don't want to do is if you have a fever, if your body's already humorally hot, is to put food and specifically hot food into your body. And that would be something like steak and wine and things like that, because your whole idea is to is to rebalance those those humors. And the same thing with with feeding a cold, um, you would want to eat something like chicken soup, where it was very warm and warming to the body as a, as a way to rebalance your humors. So as I mentioned in the beginning, rivalry is really at the center of blood work, the national rivalry, the rivalry between doctors. So we wanted to know how much of that rivalry started with Harvey's discovery of circulation. Did the majority of people still go along with the old ideas of humors and of bloodletting, or did they really pick up the baton with Harvey's new idea? Well, it's interesting when William Harvey discovers blood circulation in the 1620s, he's specifically wondering whether this idea of the humors as being um, the the definition of how blood is made and how it is used is whether that's actually accurate or not. And he determines, of course, that it's not through a whole uh, variety of experiments. And in 1628, he finally comes to the conclusion that blood circulates. But that doesn't mean that the humors go away once Harvey discovers circulation. Actually, to the contrary, we know that bloodletting and leeches and lancets continue well into the 19th century. George Washington, for example, was, historians think he was pretty much bloodlet to death, right? Because the the whole understanding of the body is this is this humoral balance will continue now harvey was attractive to many of the english thinkers but he was actually um considered too radical for the french the french who were catholic deeply deeply conservative traditional both in the religious and the political sense, but also the philosophical sense. So when Harvey presents his idea of blood circulation, the French are frankly outraged at it. And, 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 and so the story of blood work of, of the early blood transfusions and the rivalries is set in the late 1660s, but the stage itself is 
uh, created in the 1620s and 1630s, precisely, as you mentioned, with those rivalries between the French and the English around this radical theory of blood circulation. So hearing about how so many discoveries and advancements were going on in this arena in England, how is it that France is where the first blood transfusion experiments with humans started taking place? That's what we really wanted to know. How did that switch happen? And she tells us a little bit more about that here. So when William Harvey discovers blood circulation in 1628, um, that will slowly start the English to ponder what this means and also want to confirm it. So men like Christopher Wren, who we associate mostly as the great architect of London, and Thomas Willis, um, who we associate as one of the first people to do uh, neurological studies, they engage Harvey's idea of blood circulation as a way to um, see how, how blood moves through the body and specifically how it moves to the brain and does it move into the brain. And so they're able to confirm Harvey's theory, and it's nothing but a theory at this point, by doing infusion studies. So they begin injecting animals in particular with any number of fluids, right? Um, beer, wine, opium. And the thought is, is if Harvey is right and blood makes this one-way trip to the heart, is that these drugs in an animal system won't have a lasting effect because they'll be burned off immediately. But they start to see that their animals are dying, they're sick, they're drunk. So Harvey must have been on to something. Now, the French are watching with a bit of disgust. You know, it's 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 what the English are doing. Um, the English um, tend to be pretty radical. They're also fighting it out on the battlefield. The French and the English have experienced uh, a long history of animosities and rivalries. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. You're ac- absolutely right that the first human blood transfusion would be done in France because they're so resistant. Well, what happens is that the English start to move from circulation to infusion to transfusion because it makes sense if they finally started to think about putting things into animals' blood systems. Of course, maybe what they want to do is to test it out by transfusing the blood of one animal into another. And that catches the attention of a man named Jean-Baptiste Denis, a Frenchman who is not part of that French elite that is so uh, hostile to Harvey's theories of blood circulation and also to the English more generally because he wasn't trained in Paris. Paris is the seat of traditional thinking. It's It's the place where all of the best doctors go to train. And that training at the University of Paris Medical School is a traditional training that is built around Galen and Hippocrates. There's no room for any thinking outside of that. But Denis was trained at the rival school in the south of France in Montpellier, which attracted more Protestants and that also was more open to um, alchemy, more open to Paracelsus, who was one of the great alchemists, and more adventurous in a way. So Denis learns of the English transfusion experiments and he is now in Paris and wants desperately to make a name for himself. And as someone who is not noble born, he's actually um, from a very um, modest family who was not trained in Paris. The best way for him to make a name for himself is to do what any two year old would do is to throw a temper tantrum and do that very thing that the that the the parents don't want 
the child to do, which is to engage in one of the most distasteful types of experiments, and that would be the blood transfusion experiments. And that's, he ends up replicating all of the English, uh, transfusion, animal transfusion experiments. And then, um, just as the English were getting ready to perform their first human experiments, Denis scoops them essentially and does his own. So Holly Tucker's book contains a lot of details that pertain to class or status, especially regarding its primary protagonist, Jean-Baptiste Denis. Now, we're talking, she includes details like people's clothing, their education, um, the most minute things you wouldn't even think about. The curtains on their carriage. Exactly. So we wanted to know from her what role did class play in this story about science? And here's what she had to say. Oh, class is... As you mentioned, everywhere, um, one's ability to move through society um, depended on both your money and your status in early France. It, we're at a moment particularly as well when Louis XIV, the great sun king who created Versailles, of course, is in the process of strengthening his monarchy. And this He's doing this be, largely and in response to what had been a horrific moment in France following the religious wars between the, the Catholics and the Protestants. Um, in the late 16th century, France also saw civil wars in the early 17th century. So Louis XIV comes in as monarch and really wants to consolidate the power. And the best way to consolidate power, right, is to reify, is to strengthen class structures. So he moves all the nobles out to Versailles where he can keep an eye on them. So they won't want to weaken the monarchy. And the best way to keep an eye on them is to um, create these rituals all around the king and the king's body so that the, mon- the, the, the nobility at this point, they're really fighting for each other, fighting for the right, one, to be recognized in society, and two, to be able to, to be frank, to be able to ke- hold the king's um, chamber pot. <laughs> so, so, you know, in this context, the early beginnings of modern science, um, are beginning to form. Louis XIV also, um, is uncomfortable with the idea that science up until his reign had been localized primarily in private academies. So Denis' work is actually financed by a very wealthy nobleman who for years had attracted science's brightest luminaries. Christian Huygens, who discovered rings, the rings around Saturn, he just, he announced that discovery in, um, Montmartre was his name, Montmartre's Academy. Um, Montmartre tried to, um, recruit De- Rene Descartes into his academy and ended up settling for Descartes' rival, Pierre Gassendi. So what happens right as, as Denis is doing these blood transfusions, he is getting supported by um, a man whose private academy had essentially been gutted by Louis XIV's decision to move science into the state and to create the French Academy of Sciences. So there are, as you mentioned, there are so many cultural and economic restraints on science that Denis is, is really um, a renegade. In, in many, many ways, because he is butting against the, um, the, the, the tide, if you will, the political tides of the time. 
So I found the figure of Momor, the nobleman, to be a really fascinating part of the book, especially the limits that he went to to try to establish, reestablish his prestige as the head of a private academy, going against, going up against the Sun King himself. And it's not as though he's subtle about it either. Some of these blood experiments are taking place in his own home, in the center of Paris. So we wanted to hear from Holly about where these other transfusions were happening all over the city, who was observing them, and just what they were like. I mean, what the nitty-gritty of a 17th century blood transfusion was really like. And here's what she had to say. Um, most of these experiments, from Harvey well into the English experiments in the Royal Society, and then, of course, Denise legendary and uh, ill-fated experiments on humans, they're being done in private homes. And uh, I, I can't help but each time I go to Paris, for people who are in Paris, and if you stand in front of the fountain at uh, Saint-Michel and you look down the Seine toward the Louvre, on the left bank, there are a few big buildings. Denis would have done those in one of those buildings. He would have also, he we know he did, he did very public experiments on the banks of the Seine. So if you ever have a chance to walk along the river in Paris, you can imagine these well-attended animal-to-animal, specifically dog-to-dog experiments on the bank of the Seine because he, he moves it out of his own home into the public realm as a way to get attention. Now, as the English are doing many of these in their own homes, and Denis is doing this in his um, his residence as well on the bank of the banks of the Seine. Louis the Fourteenth creates the Academy of Sciences at the very same time, and then commissions his natural philosophers, as scientists were called, to perform uh, replications of the English experiments in his library on the on the right bank. And so there, it's one of the first times that we see scientific experiments being done, not just in a royal context, but in the king's own library. And the tools that they were using, as you can imagine, were really quite rudimentary. To do these experiments, all you would really need, and for the moment, we can talk about the, the animal experiments, all you would really need is a big table onto which you could strap the animals and a a bloodletting bowl for each of the animals, and then some form of tubing. And the tubing was, again, rudimentary. In the English experiments, they were using goose quills, right? So they would slip a goose quill into the vein or the artery of an animal, slip another goose quill into the vein, an artery of of, of the, the donor or the recipient, and then link those two together. The English began um, creating metal tubes, um, and the, and the French decided they wanted to trump them and they actually did a double intake tube in the Academy of, French Academy of Sciences where they could do transfusions that were simultaneous. So, uh, the dog would be a recipient and a donor at the same time. So in theory, the blood would be flowing in two ways, um, through the different, through the two tubes of the animals. So they were really quite simplistic. You also needed a fireplace because you wanted to keep the animals warm. Um, and also keep the blood warm so it would continue flowing because blood clotting, of course, was a huge problem in these experiments. Another interesting aspect of the story is that Denis didn't just perform one blood transfusion that caused all this controversy. He had three very different subjects, which are sort of interesting case studies in their own right. Tucker talks about them a little bit more here. 
Denis did three experiments in, in the end. The first was with a young boy who had been feverish for about a month. And we're not clear on how he found out about this boy. We're also not clear on how he got the mother to agree to let him perform a transfusion on her son. But one thing we are sure of is that Denis um, transfused lamb's blood into the boy's arteries. I'm sorry, into the boy's veins. And the boy did fine. He didn't die. And that was the main criterion for success, right, is whether there was death or not. Now, the fever was reduced. The boy was still very tired afterwards. We suspect that there was a blood transfusion, a blood incompatibility reaction, but nothing huge. And people always ask, how is it that someone could survive this? How could this young boy survive this? There are three criteria for um, hemolytic uh, reactions, so blood transfusion and compatibility reactions. The first is how fast the blood goes in. And they're using very, again, rudimentary um, tools. So the blood is likely not moving very fast because it's also clotting. So first, how fast the blood moves in, how much, again, not very fast because it's clotting, not very much because it's clotting. And then the third criteria is uh, criterion is whether there's been previous exposure. Of course, the boy had no previous exposure to lamb's blood, so it didn't move fast. There wasn't a lot, and there had been no previous exposure. And when you talk to um, immunologists, they'll tell you that the human body can really take a lot of insult. Um, and there's no surprise among the physicians that I consulted for this book that the boy could have survived this. Now, the second one is interesting because it's here, there is absolutely no therapeutic interest. It's purely experimental. As Denis then for the second transfusion moves to a butcher. And I can't be sure, but I think the butcher was the same butcher who provided the sheep for the first one because the, the butcher in the first experiment was really lively, very funny, gregarious. Um, and the butcher in the second experiment, um, is the same, um, same attitude. In fact, um, after the blood transfusion, and of course the, the sheep is, is dead. He goes, Hey, what are you going to do with that sheep? Can I take it home? Um, either to sell it or to eat it. And Denise says, well, I, yeah, sure. We know that in the second case is that the butcher was paid because Denise, after the experiment is feeling pretty good about himself, is walking through the streets of his neighborhood and looks into a tavern for some reason catches his eye and he sees his butcher that he just transfused drunk as a skunk and storms the tavern to yell at his patient saying, what are you doing? Well, the, the gregarious butcher throws his arms around Denis and says, look at me. I'm feeling great. And the butcher's friends all say, Hey, you know, give me one of these transfusions. Give me some money. And so he now has not only not killed his patients, but he's creating the name for himself that he desperately wants to to have. And he has patients ready, willing, and lined up. The third transfusion, interestingly, he doesn't reach for any of those volunteers. But with the nobleman, Momor, who is financing his experiments, they decide that the next step then would be to take the most famous man in Paris, in fact, the most notoriously famous man in Paris, um, a man named Antoine Mouroy, who ran the streets regularly naked, delirious. Um, he was considered the madman of the most elite neighborhood of Paris, and they pluck him off of the streets. 
of course, against his will, tie him up and transfuse him with, interestingly, not lamb's blood this time, but uh, uh, cow blood. And the first transfusion goes pretty well. Um, Mohua is calmed. Now, it was likely he was just very sick, but he's calmed down. They decide to try a second one. He's even more calm, likely even more sick. Um, and they end up sending him home to this hovel of a village shack that he lives in back to his wife. And uh, later, a few months later, the wife comes storming to Denise door and says, my husband's at it again. He is delusional. He's going crazy. You need to transfuse him with with blood again. And Denis, of course, sees this as a wonderful opportunity to try it again. He goes out to the village, begins a transfusion. Mohua um, begins having seizures. It's not clear whether and how much blood may have been transfused. And the next day, the man is dead. And Denis will later be called up on murder charges. So this is where the mystery really begins, the one that Holly is trying to solve throughout the course of this book. The madman has been murdered, but why? What were the motives behind this crime? We didn't want to give away the whodunit aspect of it, because why would you want to read the book if we did that? But we did want to get a little bit more into who might have done it. And here's what she had to say. Well, the motives actually go back to a question that I know a lot of people must ask when they hear the story is why in the world were they using animal blood, right? And that is actually at the heart of the murder charges, essentially, and, and the outcome of this. For transfusionists like Denis and for many of the transfusionists in England, it made perfect sense because animal flesh and fluid had long been used for therapeutics. So if I, going back to the humors, if I was feeling overly, overly cold as far as, you know, being very phlegmy in the humoral sense, I might reach for a raw steak, a big glass of wine um, to be able to bolster my system. The same thing with fruits and vegetables. It's very, it's very interesting is that all different types of conception manuals um, will tell you that if you want to have a baby boy, baby boys are, men are considered humorally to be hot. What you would do is, uh, is, is reach for things like stag testicles and you would dry them and powder them and sprinkle them on your food as a way to bolster your humoral system is to make your body hotter so that when it came time to conceive, you'd be more likely to conceive a boy. So animals had long been used as as medicine, essentially. And there's a second element, is that there is a man named René Descartes, a philosopher in the 1630s. Of course, he's famous to us now because all we have to do is say Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Descartes put forth a radical theory, is that animal bodies and human bodies are identical. They function more or less like machines. The only difference between animal to Descartes, the only difference between animal and human bodies is that humans can speak, they can reason, and they have souls. And Descartes says all of those attributes that make us human actually are not lodged at all in the body. Now, it was highly contested. Descartes spent much of his life in Holland in exile because his theories of blood circulation was a radical theory. So was Descartes' idea. So it was thought that if Descartes is right, then transfusing animal blood into humans would be little more than changing the oil in a car, right? 
But the fear is, what if Descartes is wrong? What if there's something in animal blood that is specifically animal? And what if animals have souls? What if all of that is in this red fluid and we're now moving into humans? Could humans begin taking on animal attributes? And then vice versa, if we start to move human blood into animals, could science now have the means to create through blood transfusion, through blood transfer, could it, could it create hybrid species, monsters? That was a frightening proposition, right? It seems ridiculous to us, but at the time, the greatest thinkers were terrified of that prospect and Denis needed to be stopped. So at the heart of um, the murder trial is that there was a plot, essentially, um, and as I as I uncover in the book, Denis was acquitted of murder, but it was clear that the patient had been murdered by arsenic with the help of three physicians. And so I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what in the world that would mean. And sure enough, with the speculation that possibly this this fear of hybrid species was underlying it all. And sure enough, once I was able to uncover the the murderers, it's it's glaring is that they set Denis up as a way to to save the human species. It's a noble cause, isn't it? (laughs) So finally, when we were kind of wrapping up our interview, we're going to have a part two as well, by the way. But when we were wrapping up our interview, we told Holly that one of these episodes would be the culmination of our October Halloween series, because after all, blood and monsters, pretty great combo. And she was amused by that, fortunately, and offered one last take on this tale of medicine and murder, which we thought was really fun. I think we have a tendency to look at look at scientists um, both as being very important and making all these great breakthroughs. But there's always this deep fear that underlying underlying all science and in the hearts of scientists is this deep, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Frankenstein element, which I don't I don't think is true. But Jean-Baptiste Denis essentially represents that as well as he's he's questing for the greatest answers of of nature. But at the same time, could he be? Um, ruining the human species. Um, so he, he's something of a, a, an early example of Dr. Frankenstein, if you will. So there you have it. Frankenstein. It doesn't get any more Halloween-y than that. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a pretty great spooky combo. So it was really fun to talk to Holly about the book and the, the story behind the book, but we also wanted to hear some about how she went about researching it, how she went about solving that cold case. And we're saving that part for a second half of this interview. So you can tune in in a couple weeks, maybe, and check out that. And it's just exciting as the other stuff, if not more. It really is. It is like super adventures in the archives, essentially, uh, with a little bit of frustration in there, too. But we hope we've given you a little bit about blood to go on in case you're planning your Halloween costume for this year and blood is a part of it. I mean, if you go out and pick up the book in time, you might even be able to incorporate some of the details from it in your costume. Maybe you'll go as William Harvey. Buy some goose quills. Yes, but we wouldn't recommend trying any of these experiments at home, although they might have done that in the 17th century. But if you do get a chance to pick up the book, we'd like to, as we did with the McCullough book recently, we'd like to start a little discussion of it. Please 
Hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History, or you can always email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We'd love to get a little discussion going about what you like about the book, um, what was surprising to you, or if there's anything else you just want to know about blood or blood circulation or blood transfusions, please write to us and we will try to find the answers for you. But they may be answered in the next episode, so you might want to wait. <laughs> so stay tuned. And uh, in the meantime, you can go and check out medical type topics on our own website at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com.